Genesis 1, 1 through 13. So Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your goodness in this world that you've made. God, even just thinking about a world untainted by sin, flourishing with life, beautiful, coming into existence by your very word. And Lord, it's that same word that made the heavens and the earth and made the earth to flourish that we have in front of us today. Lord, the word of God, which can penetrate our hearts and bring flourishing to our lives and to our souls. And so God, we ask that you would teach us from your word and that we would receive not only truth, Lord, but that we would receive you, that we would receive your wisdom, your guidance, your beauty, your goodness for us today, and that we would receive it in the power and the presence of the name of Jesus. It's in that name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you remember dial-up internet? Yeah? For those of you who were born after 1995, let me explain to you what life was like with dial-up internet. Imagine uh, a place that has really, really bad Wi-Fi. And then multiply that by like a billion. And anytime the phone rang, you got booted off the internet. <laughs> Anyone who has experienced the, the, the high speed, it's almost predictive, right? Like you type in your Google search and sometimes like if your computer is like clean of viruses and you have all these windows closed, sometimes it, it feels to me that before my finger even presses down, it's the, the page is already up. Do you, you, do you remember having to wait for the page to load just line by line? And that was just for text. You know, imagine how long you'd have to wait to like stream Netflix with dial-up internet. It would be awful. No one who has experienced the high-speed access to the internet would ever choose to go back to dial-up. Nobody. Not even like... LA hipsters want to be that retro, 
and go back to like AOL and that noise that was in your ear as you tried to log into the internet. You're just not going to do it. But then why do so many Christians prefer to talk about God as though he were someone that needed a millennia to create the heavens and the earth when the Bible says that it was made in six days? In fact, why wouldn't our initial question See, Christians will look at this, and we have these conversations about, was it really six days? I mean, science tells us that the earth's been around for 4.5 billion years, and humans did not show up until significantly later than that. So as Christians who believe in an omnipotent, uh, all-knowing, limitless God, want to still somehow try to make their faith, try to make God's story fit into this 21st century Western scientific worldview instead of reading the text at face value and receiving the story that it has for us. And so our first question is often, it's not literally a day. But why wouldn't our question instead, given what we believe about God, and what he's done, and his power, and all the things that we see in the story, why wouldn't our first question be, six days? What took you so long? Why did you need six days? You could have done this instantly. Why six days? Why not immediately? Why are so many Christians more comfortable with a God who commanded light into existence and then had to wait for it to load, line by line? over a millennia. That would be a funny story, but it's not this story. That's not the story that the Bible is telling. The only explanation for this is an attempt to force the Bible to harmonize with the scientific worldview. Now, I'm not anti-science. If you've been a part of this Genesis series, I'm not anti-science. I am not anti-old earth theology. I'm not even anti-a theistic evolutionary perspective that would allow God to be the one empowering and navigating the development of a plethora of species. I'm not anti any of those things. What I am against is Christians giving more authority to a culture developed by human beings to tell us what the story must say instead of giving that authority to God to interpret his own story to us. That is what I'm opposed to. I am opposed to placing any authority over God's word and mitigating to us what it must say and what it must mean. Our approach, our attempt in this Genesis series is to read the text as it is and try to understand it as it would have been understood to a first century Jewish person living in and among the cultures of the ancient Near East. Because if what we understand from the text is not what they understood from the text, then we are the ones that have work to do. We are the ones that have to align our thinking to the way the text came to us, not the other way around. Okay, we want to understand what the story says because in that story, God's truth is available to us. And so Genesis tells us that God made the world in six days. Now, it doesn't necessarily matter to me much whether you believe that word day is literal or metaphorical. 
But what would be wrong is to say either that God did not make the world or to say that he could not have made the world in six days. These would conflict and diminish the intent of the story, which is ultimately teaching us that God has absolute power in this universe. In the creation account, that God is absolutely powerful and wise and beautiful. Or what I would like to say that our text says that God is an unlimited God. He is a God completely without limitations. There's no greater example of of God's limitless wisdom and power in the Old Testament than the story of creation. And this is very different than the view of the gods in the ancient Near Eastern world. We live in a day where the word God means some being that is without limits of power and, and, and wisdom, and he's always present, always. God is everywhere, and he's, he's infinitely wise and infinitely powerful and infinitely good and infinitely loving. And we say God, that's what we mean when we say God, even across different faiths. That's what that word God means in Western American culture. But that's not what it meant to the ancient Near Eastern people. The gods in their culture, though greater than humans, did not have unlimited power. The gods of, that they believed in, the gods that they worshipped, the gods whose temples they established, they did not have unlimited power. Their jurisdictions were tied to particular parts of creation or natural phenomena. And so day and night, the gods who, who were responsible for day and night, they were constantly at war with each other. And every day, the night would eventually overcome the, dark, the, the, the light. And then in the morning, that God would gain energy again, and then they would overcome the darkness. And it was in this constant struggle. And for some reason, in winter, the darkness was more powerful than the light. And in the summer, the light was more powerful than the dark. And so they saw this war between the gods that they believed in. The chaotic forces of the sea were constantly straining against the boundaries established by the gods over the land and the gods of weather and thunder and rain and all of these things, if they were happy with you, you were blessed and they, you know, rained just enough on your crops. And if they weren't happy with you, you got hit with a lightning bolt or something, or, or the rain was withheld. So all of your crops would die. And this is the way they believed their gods worked. And so enter the Genesis story, a God that is not just greater than other gods, not just currently victorious over gods, but a God who can't lose, a God who has no weakness, a God who is an unlimited God, is completely foreign to their understanding of the reality of the world. And so we read in the text, in the creation story, that God has unlimited power. What he says goes. He's like a king declaring his royal edict that something should be and before his servants even have an opportunity to go and carry it out, it's done. That's this phrase in this text, and it was so. He said it and it was so. He said it and it happened. By his very word, he makes the heavens and the earth and makes them to flourish. 
God has unlimited power. This is the story being told in the Genesis account. And because of the cultural context that it was originally written to, another implication of the creation text is that God has no rivals. See, he's not just absolutely powerful, which is different than what they believed of their gods, but God is without rivals. There's no one in this text interfering with God's desire to make the world exactly as he wants it to be. Again, this is not the case with the ancient Near East. We've talked about the Babylonian creation myth in previous sermons, the Enuma Elish, which describes the way that Marduk created the the sky and the land by defeating the god Tiamat and ripping her corpse in two and making the sky out of one half of her and the sea out of the other half of her. The world was born out of conflict and war. It was born out of rivalry, but that's not the story of the Bible. God has no rivals. God doesn't go to war with any other deity over this world. He's not opposed by any God or any power. Even the darkness, which was seen as a kind of a sinister thing in the ancient world, and the water that was seen as this chaotic force in the world, even those things, they're no match for God. They have no power to stop God from doing what he wants to do. Light and dark are not at war with God. The waters are not the enemy of land or the enemy of God. But light and dark and land and sea, they all have a good place in God's world. All of these things, even the darkness, even even the sea, the depths of the sea, they all have a good place in God's world and makes the world a place that has unlimited potential for good. So the biblical text tells us about an unlimited God who creates a world of potential for unlimited good. The world that God makes, though ultimately for his glory, is made full of everything that we need, not just for survival, but for flourishing. Think of it this way. In the ancient world, uh, currency as we know it, dollars, uh, paper money, coins, what have you, wasn't a thing. Okay, before currency existed, wealth was determined not by a dollar amount or by, you know, currency, but wealth was determined by how much of God's creation was entrusted to you. So think of the way the Bible describes Abraham or or Job's wealth. It's all in terms of his flocks and his herds and his lands. And even gold and silver is a natural resource uh, that isn't minted coin. And so their wealth is determined by how much of God's goodness in creation they had charge over. Uh, Currency was a later development because it was much easier Uh, You don't have to go to the the market with like a bunch of chickens to trade them for a goat. You can go with a wallet and just like tap your card. Um, It's gotten significantly easier to spend money in this world. Now you don't even have to slide your card. You don't have to sign anymore. You just like, ding. And these things are magically yours for free. Um, So this world where wealth and abundance is defined by the availability of God's goodness in in creation, 
uh, it, it changes our perception. So if you're like me, maybe you had a parent or maybe you are a parent who when one of your kids or you wanted something that was too expensive, someone says, um, money doesn't grow on trees. Well, I want to direct your attention to the third day of creation. All the goodness and fullness of God's creation, literally just coming out of the ground. All the, the food that, that, that humans and animals will need just growing on trees. Even when we get to the sixth day of creation, that says that the land produces. God says, let the land produce uh, all of these creatures, beasts of the fields, cattle and, and domesticated animals and all of these things. It's just like coming out of the world. And so God has made this world to provide abundantly for the flourishing, for the blessing of humanity, which is so different than the way the cultures that they lived around believed. They believed that humans were made to till the soil and, and produce a crop so that they could feed the gods because the gods didn't want to feed themselves. And so humans were slaves to the gods constantly trying to appease them, constantly trying to give them what they wanted so that the gods would give them what they wanted. It was, this, it was this contractual relationship. And so, so different is the story of the Bible, that God has made a world with humans in focus, that God has made a world that is perfectly fit for us, such goodness, such grace, such love, such generosity, that God didn't make the world for himself and then us to serve his fickle needs. God made the world to bless his people. I think many of us live more like a Babylonian and less like a Christian. That we think God has these standards for us that we need to follow in order to be blessed instead of recognizing that God has blessed us abundantly in his presence and ultimately with his son. And because he lavishes good things upon us, we love him and we do what he desires because our lives belong to him. We need to stop living like Babylonians and start living like people who believe that God is actually as good as his word tells us he is. That he's good. He's always, always good. And so God sees all that he makes when he forms our home and says that it is good. He doesn't say that it's good enough. Eh, that'll do. He says it's good. And this is a direct contrast to the formlessness and void of verse 2. Remember last week, tohu vavohu, right? This, this purposeless wasteland the, without form and void. This tohu vavohu has become tov. Tov is the Hebrew word for good. And so the, the author is clearly making this connection that what was tohu vavohu is now tov. He's playing on the words. And so all this goodness, all this value, all this beauty is coming to the world. No more chaos, just good. The light is good. The darkness is good. The land is good. The sea is good. He calls it all good, unlimited good in this world that he has made for us. But this limitless God and limitless good does not mean that we get to live without limitations. God's unlimited good comes to us through 
the limitations that he places on this good world. And this is what we're going to explore the rest of our time together today, the goodness of God's limitations. I want you to notice how in each of the first three days of creation, um, in fact, uh, all six days of creation, but we're just focusing on the first three today, God, uh, he makes something, he, uh, he names something, uh, but he also separates. He creates separation. He creates light. He calls it day, and he separates the light from the darkness, giving a boundary, a limit between light and dark. On the second day, he separates water from water. And I don't want to get hung up on this and how it works because it's not super integral to the story, but we need to address it. Now, we know that there's no solid structure in the sky. We just, we know that above us is, is sky. But the, the ancients believed that there was a dome that covered the earth, a solid structure, and above that dome was water. That's why you look up at the sky and you see blue because it's, it's water. And sometimes water falls from the sky. So you know there's water up there somewhere. And the, the, the barrier, the limit that is holding the water back is called the firmament. The, the English standard translation, which we read this morning, calls it the expanse. But that word there is literally firmament. It's this hard structure, either metal or ice or glass or something that the ancients believed were actually was holding water back. And the firmament was a barrier. It was a limitation placed on the waters so that they didn't just come falling down and flood the earth like we will see in Genesis chapter 11. When the floods come, the waters from above and the waters from below flood the earth. It's this picture of the world being uncreated and going back to chaos. And so they believed that up there was this this dome and God has brought separation uh, to the waters. And so day two, he doesn't just create sky and sea. He puts a barrier, a limitation between the two. And then on day three, God causes the seas to pool together in one place so that the dry land can emerge. Again, setting a barrier at the shore, right? Proverbs 8.29 says, he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command. This limitation on the seas is so that the seas don't encroach on the land and bring destruction as we see in uh, a tsunami, the water transgressing its limits. But because of these limitations, the dry land is now full of vegetation and the basis for rainfall has been established and there is just the right amount of light and darkness to sustain Life. Think about if those limitations were not there. If there were no limitations between light and dark and light was able to overcome the darkness, all of the plants on the earth would be scorched. If darkness was allowed to overcome the light, there'd be no, I mean, they didn't know what photosynthesis is, but the, the, the plants couldn't produce food. They observed the world. They knew that plants that grew in the shade didn't do as well as those that grew in the sun. If there was no limitation, no, no, no barrier, or, or uh, water was not able to come through that barrier, again, in the ancient mindset, then there would either be too much water and flood all of the vegetation, or not enough water, and it would 
dry out or if the ocean constantly just overwhelmed the land, right? Life and, and flourishing, the vegetation, it would not be able to happen. And so this separation and limitation in the created world are part of what it means for everything to be good. The world went from disorder to order. It went from a non-functioning tohu vavohu to a functioning good, tov, for the goodness of God's creation. It's a good world full of limitless beauty and pleasure, but it comes to us through God's limitations. You see that, right? But we don't like limitations. We really don't. Limits feel restricting. We think of limitations and, and barriers as these things that prevent us from doing the things that we want to do or going the places that we want to go. But I want to encourage us to change our minds about limitations. Think about limitations like the walls of a house, right? Providing safety so that the family inside can flourish. Or think about stoplights and traffic regulations, Okay, you can think of it as limiting. You want to go drive on the Autobahn or something like that. But when you're driving through Carpinteria, mind the rules of the road because my kids are riding bikes in the neighborhood. The, key, the limits, they keep people safe so that they can flourish and enjoy the world that God has made. A classic example that's been used often is a, a kite on a string. If a kite had, you know, cognitive thought, it might think, Stupid string, keeping me tied to the earth. I want to go touch the sun. And then you cut the string, and what happens to the kite? <laughs> Collides to the earth. Right? That string is a limitation that actually allows for it to do what it was made to do, to soar and to put smiles on your kids' faces. That string is an important limitation. So the thing that was made can do what it was made to do. See, we hate limitations. All day long, we strive for limitlessness and we call it freedom, but we're constantly confronted and constrained by our limitations. Limitations on time, right? There's never enough time. There's never enough time to do the things that you want to do. And think about even, that's, that's really what God makes on the first day. He doesn't just make light. He makes time. That's why he calls the light day. He doesn't call the light light. He calls the light day. And he separates it from the darkness and calls it night. He's giving us the basis for time. And yet we strain against the limitations of time all the time. This is why I think God actually took six days to make the world. Just because he could do something more in one day doesn't mean he has to do something more in one day. Just because you can get something done in one day doesn't mean it's healthy for you to get that stuff done in one day. Sometimes it's okay to put off for tomorrow what can be done today, what is possible to be done today in order to choose something better, like rest, like family, like joy, like less anxiety, like more sleep. And so we strain against the limitations of time. We strain against the limitations on space, whether the house that we live in is not big enough or the world that we live in is not big enough for the population. So I need to move houses and we need to colonize Mars. Not enough space, 
We've got to go find more space. What about limits on our relational capacity? We are so so tired, so strained by the ability to have relationships with people that we never would have had relationships with if it weren't for the boom in technology and social media and all of those things. 200 years ago, if you moved away more than a few days journey from your family, you just never saw them again. That was commonplace. And now we feel obligated to keep in touch with people from high school that you didn't even like then. But now that I have the opportunity, I must do it because that's what it means to be a good human. I would argue that it's not. It's not what it means to be a good human, constantly straining our relational capacity and therefore straining our emotional capacity. We weren't made to bear the pains of the world. We weren't made to bear the pains of Carpinteria. I mean, this was a big city in ancient contexts. And yet now we have the capacity, we have the ability, we assume that we should have the capacity. And then when we don't, we're not only stressed out, but then we're discouraged because we think we should do better constantly straining against the limitations in this world. This isn't even mentioning living outside of our financial limitations. Just because you can buy something doesn't mean you can afford it. Just because I can walk out of the store with it doesn't mean that it's a wise choice. Constantly living outside of our financial limitations, bringing debt into ourselves and therefore decreasing the quality of life. Debt is, is atrocious if you're trying to live a life of peace and freedom. We enslave ourselves to the debtor. So we need to learn to embrace our limitations as part of God's goodness in creation, as part of God's goodness to us and provision for us. As long as we continue to fight against our limitations, we're constantly going to be shrouded in discontentment and debt. But when we embrace our limits and live within them, we find that we have all that we need in abundance. We have an abundance of good things given to us in this world. The very nature of being human means to be limited. We know that we are limited. We know that we are finite. And all our lives, we try to just be a little less finite, a little more limitless, a little more like God and less like us, a little more powerful, a little more wealthy, a little more profitable, constantly straining outside of our human limitations. And look, the biblical storyline and the history of the world is full of people who constantly try to exceed their limitations, transcend their human limitations, and transgress these limitations that were made for our good. And it always results in suffering. The fall of humanity in Genesis 3 is human beings who are made in the image of God. They were already like God in every way possible. 
They were more like God than they could possibly imagine. And the serpent comes and says, God's holding out on you. You could be like God. They already were. And so in an attempt to be like God, they end up living like animals. The, the, the violence of Cain and Abel, the violence throughout the rest of the Bible, we're living like animals, all because we tried to transcend our humanity and be like God when we already were like God. And suffering and pain and brokenness enters the world. Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God, they, they transgress the limits that God had placed on their, uh, their, their rule, their world, and they intermingle with humans in a way to try to corrupt the, the, the human race and bring destruction to the human race. And God has to send a flood to wipe it out. Pain and destruction because creatures do not mind their creatureness and try to be something different. Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. Humans try to transcend their humanity and be like God by ascending to heaven apart from God's work. They want to do it themselves. So God scatters them over the face of the world. He scatters them from his self. Every time we try to be more than human, we end up living less than human. Every time you try to live more than human by the money that you spend, you live in debt and pain and fear of not being able to pay the bills. Every time we try to exceed our creatureliness in order to be like God, we find ourselves living a life even less like God and less like human beings than we ever thought imaginable. Pain and suffering and difficulty and debt, it comes to us when we don't mind our limitations, when we don't receive our limitations as good things. See, today we're not exempt from these same desires to transcend. We're not exempt from them, but they still result in pain. This is why we're anxious and stressed as a people. Just generally true of all of us. We are anxious and stressed and tired, emotionally exhausted, burnt out, irritable, given to addiction, given to excess, misprioritizing our time, and buried in debt. All because we're trying to be something that we're not. It's because we do not believe these limitations are good. If something is possible, we believe we're entitled to it. If something is possible for that person, then I am entitled to that. Why are they any greater than I? Why should they have that? Well, they sacrifice, they work, you know, 20 hours a day. I'm going to work 20 hours a day. Trying to achieve the thing that we think is good and losing what's really good. Our humanity. Our, our image of God. And so trying to become something greater than we are, we end up living less fulfilling lives, unable to enjoy the good we have because we've decided it's not good enough. But the Bible didn't say the world was good enough. It said it was good. God says that it is good. And so I just want to ask, where are you living outside of your limitations? Where do you find yourself straining against the good limits that God has placed in this world? And how much longer can you go before it all comes unraveling? All of us, look, I'll just confess, 
I'm living outside my limitations. And I'll justify it. I will justify it all day long. Because this church means the world to me. And because I love you and this community. So I can justify it. I'm living outside my limitations. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to my family. It's not fair to God. We're all living outside of our limitations. I say that not to create fear in you. I'm not going anywhere. I say that because as my brothers and sisters hold me accountable to living within my limitations, because it doesn't matter how much good we do as a church in the next six months. If we're dead in a year, if I'm dead in a year, it doesn't matter. Hold me accountable to my limitations. They're there. They're there. Where are you living outside of your limitations? So we need to stop seeing these limitations as something that we should be good enough or strong enough or smart enough to transcend. And we need to embrace our humanity, that we are created beings with incredible potential. But our greatest good will come to us and to the world by embracing our limitations. Like a kite learning to embrace the kite string, we need to see our limitations not as something holding us back, but something as keeping us operating according to God's good design. I read an article this week about Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve in the the 70s to about the mid-90s was the perfect example of what it meant to be an American human male. The perfect example, handsome, athletic, charming. He was the perfect person to play Superman in the original Superman films. And then in 1995, he was in a tragic horseback riding accident and was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And as he talked about his life, he said that his life and and the good that he did did not begin until he was limited until his body was confined to the wheelchair, did he start doing more for humanity than he ever did acting as Superman. All kinds of ADA reform and and helping uh, the progress of spinal surgeries, all of these things he did as a quadriplegic because he embraced his limitations and did what he could within them. It's only when we embrace our limitations that we will actually start to experience the fullness of God in this world and the fullness of good in our creator. So then how do we do that? How do we learn to embrace limitations that we have been programmed by culture to reject? You can try to move off the grid and buy a tiny house, and adopt a minimalist lifestyle. Um, But if we don't deal with the issues in our hearts that are constantly trying to experience more, then we are not only going to be frustrated with ourselves, but we are going to be frustrated with God. The way to enjoy the goodness in creation is not to remove yourself from the goodness of creation, but it is to believe that the goodness of creation that God has made, he has made for your good and wants you to enjoy. 
that he is a good father who gives his children good gifts and that he provides everything that you need. If you see God as withholding or the, real, the world's resources as something to be hoarded because there might not be enough for you, then you're always going to live in this scarcity mindset. But the moment you actually trust in God's ability and his desire to give you good things, it frees us to receive his good gifts as a part of his abundance. See, God is not holding out on you as the serpent wanted Adam and Eve to believe. He's not holding out on you. His world is full of good things that he wants you to enjoy. He is a good father that wants to give his children good gifts. And the reason we live with the scarcity mindset is because at the end of the day, we don't believe that. We might know it theologically. I I know all the Bible verses. I know that to be true. But we don't believe that we'll actually experience that in life. Or for some reason, we're exempt from God's goodness. And yeah, we can point to things in our lives. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why did this happen? Yeah, the world has fallen. There's brokenness and sin and pain and death and, and, and all of these things. And that cause us at the end of the day to think that, well, I know that he's good, but this is my experience. And so we're always going to believe that God is holding out on us until we reckon with the truth of Jesus. So committed to your good is the unlimited God that he limited himself and entered into your limitation as a human being. That the infinite, uncontainable God became a human being. Philippians 2 said that he did not count equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a human being. He was brought into human limitation and he lived within those limitations to the obedience of God the Father. And there's never been a greater life than that. There's never been a greater life more full of the goodness of God than the life of Jesus Christ. And he was not angry that though he was able, he was kept from it because he had to be a human being. He willingly limited himself and lived within your limitations and ultimately experienced the greatest of human limitations, death. Jesus experienced finality in his human life when it came to an end on the cross. But death could not hold the unlimited God. And three days later, he raises from the dead, defeating the the greatest enemy of humanity. And by sending his spirit, we now, finite, limited human beings, are now united to Christ in faith. And in Jesus, we experience the fullness of God's unlimited goodness. That God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That we become partakers of the divine nature. That we experience the personhood and the love and the beauty of God in all of life. All of the fullness of God's goodness we experience by coming to Jesus and receiving what Jesus has for us. Limitations are not evil. Limitations are not to be transcended. Limitations are to remind us of our need for Jesus. And by receiving 
Jesus, we receive a God that is so much greater than anything we could possibly imagine. Jesus not only validates the goodness of limitations, but he empowers us to operate within them and experience the flourishing that comes from when we stop trying to live like God's and start receiving from God. When we try to exceed our limitations, we stop trying to receive from God. And it shows that we're trying to live as though we were God. And in her book, Restoring the Soul of Your Leadership, Ruth Haley Barton quotes an old saying. She says, we are not human beings trying to become spiritual. We are spiritual beings trying to become human. That we are already so much more like God than we could ever possibly imagine, made in the image of God. And we receive that goodness. We receive that dignity. We experience the joy that comes of that. Not when we try to cast it off and live as something more, but when we embrace it and live as the good thing, the good man, the good woman that God has made you to be in his image, you will actually do more for yourself, more for your family, more for your church, and more for this world. If you stop trying to exceed the limitations and receive them, and in the capacity that God has given you, live for the glory of God. This identity that we have been given is full of dignity and ultimately is an opportunity to live like Jesus. That's my hope for you. It's my hope for myself, my family. It's my hope for our church. That we would see the things that we are limited from and be okay with it. Just be okay with it. And operate within our capacity for the glory of God. And I guarantee you that God in you, in your weakness, in your finiteness, will do more than you ever thought possible. This is ultimately what Paul says in the book of Philippians when he says that I have learned the secret to contentment in all things. Whether I abound or whether I am in need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That we are content in Christ, regardless of limitless finances or poverty. That when we are content with our limitations, God has the opportunity to use that weakness to show the world how infinite and unlimited he is. And that's our hope. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We give you all glory and honor and praise for you and you alone are without limitation. You can do all things that you desire and you desire to make a world filled with unlimited good. God, I pray that now we would begin to experience that good in Christ, that you would stir our hearts up to worship you our good, good Father, who provides all that we need and provides it in abundance. Lord, this does not mean that we don't ever go in want, that we don't ever feel like we are lacking things that we need. God, and I pray for those who are not experiencing limitations as good things, 
but experiencing limitations as oppression, experiencing limitations as, as tragedy, Lord. And we ask that even in this time, right now, that those limitations would not uh, darken their view of you, but that it would show them just how bright and how beautiful you are because you stepped into those very limitations to set us free and to give us an eternity, an infinite, limitless life with you. And so God, we, we celebrate you, we worship you, we delight in you in this place together. God, fill this limited space with your unlimited spirit and lead us as we live and lead us as we worship you today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.